Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Monday, February the 1st. Coming up, Ontario begins mandatory testing at Pearson today. Plus, the Bay is cutting 600 jobs, and Ontario will be using student teachers as more schools reopen. All of that coming up right now on the pod. First, it's day one of mandatory testing for international travelers coming into Pearson. This, of course, ahead of a slew of other changes for travelers that were announced by the federal government back on Friday. And for more on this story, here is a Jim Byers. He, of course, is Canada's travel guy, and he joins us now with more here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jim, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm okay, thanks. Uh, first of all, have we kind of got a handle on or got our heads around what exactly has changed for travelers starting today who are coming into Pearson? Yeah, well, a lot. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it was a pretty much a bombshell uh, 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 announcement on, on Friday when they said that, you know, all of the four major Canadian airlines were all suspending their service as of yesterday uh, to the Caribbean and Mexico. Notwithstanding, those are not really the areas that are that are having problems with the new variant, but it was kind of a symbolic uh, sort of gesture, I think. And uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, the, the really, I think even the, the, the biggest deterrent for people who want to travel, Jeff, is the fact that, you know, starting as maybe as soon as Thursday, the government says, maybe as soon as Thursday, if you when you land, you take a test. And whether you wait three days for that test, or up to three days for that test, and mandatory, you spend 2000 bucks and you get put in an airport hotel while you wait for that test. You don't leave that room. Okay, but that's, um, sorry to interrupt you, and that's not happening yeah. as of right now. As you mentioned, it could be no. as early as Thursday. But if I were to land at Pearson uh, this afternoon, I simply have to, what, the, the test gets administered, and then I am uh, to go home and quarantine until I get the results. That's the that's the plan at this point, and you're still subject at this point in Ontario at Toronto Pearson to that 14-day quarantine that we're all supposed to have. So that doesn't it doesn't really change a whole lot. It's nice to have, but it, it was very much overtaken by the federal rules, which, as you said, are probably supposed to come in later this week. Okay, and when they do come into effect, those federal rules, will that federal test? Do we know? Does it replace this provincial test that has been installed starting today? Nobody has said that, but you'd have to think there's no reason to take two tests. So if everybody coming into Toronto Pearson, as of whatever day this week this starts, is going to be tested by federal government, then there's no reason for Premier Ford to have his test. But, you know, uh, uh, the Premier wanted to make sure that this was up and running just in case the federal plan got delayed. He also gets a little bit of political mileage out of it. So uh, I think there was a little bit of that going on. But uh, once you land... Um, one is presuming at this point that when everybody lands, they will not be subject to two tests, but they will be subject to that $2,000 mandatory quarantine for at least three days. And that alone, Jeff, as you can imagine, like who wants to go to, you know, Florida or, or Italy or, or, or uh, uh, Hong Kong or wherever and then come back and, and be forced to spend three days in a hotel at a cost of $2,000. And then if you're negative, you're, you, can, you can go home, but you're going to be under surveillance. If you're positive, you get sent to another federal facility, which they haven't told us what those are going to be, and there you stay there for another 11 days. It's, 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 it's very onerous, and it, and it will certainly um, discourage people from traveling. So if that's what they wanted to do, and it's what they said they wanted to do, it's going to work. Well, a lot of critics believe this is onerous by design. And do we have any further details on these hotels since this announcement on Friday, Jim? Do we know uh, which hotels they are? Are they ones along the uh, airport uh, strip? Uh, have we been given any further information regarding that? 
I've not been able to find anything definitive, Jeff. I mean, I had uh, the minister was interviewed on the minister of transport was minister, uh, interviewed on the weekend, and he did use the word airport hotels, which makes perfect sense. I mean, you're not going to put people on a bus and, and send them halfway uh, halfway downtown. Um, so, you know, certainly at Calgary, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, all have airport hotels nearby. You're not looking at thousands and thousands of people who are going to be traveling. One assumes so those those hotels should be fine. Uh, you know, some people will probably end up with nicer rooms than others, but I don't think anybody's getting champagne and caviar, and I don't think anybody's staying at the Fairmont. Okay, well, having said that, a big question I saw time and time again over the weekend is why is it going to cost me two thousand dollars? Why is a three day hotel stay? going to cost me $2,000. Is that the government just kind of going to what they anticipate the maximum to be, just in, so travelers have got kind of maybe a worst-case scenario when it comes to price? It could be. What, they, what, what I heard them explain, Jeff, was that, you know, this is the cost of the test. This is the cost of the hotel for three nights. This is the cost of your food. This is the cost of the security person, either outside the rooms, which they do in Australia, literally outside your room and in New Zealand, or maybe in the hallway at the end of the hallway or, or in the in the lobby, whatever it may be. And it also is supposed to, I think, uh, pay for some of the costs of the people who test positive and have another 11 days that some of that $2,000, I presume, will go to help fund for those other 11 days that those that the negative the positive tested people we don't know you know it, 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 it this was announced pretty hurriedly uh there was not a lot of details and there's a number of things like that that we're still not sure about we're still not sure about the u.s land border because they're threatening that there's going to be uh testing is going to be required there but it's it's not clear whether those people still have to quarantine you know all about snowbirds which you guys mentioned on the air a few minutes ago how does that affect the snowbirds uh, if they want to drive home, there's a, still a lot of questions going. Well, that was one of my next questions for you. Yeah, it's still not clear when it comes to the uh, land crossings, uh, what's going to be uh, rolled out there, because you would have to think if this is being done to uh, keep our COVID numbers down and the variant uh, out of the country as uh, much as possible, well, you've got to fight that not only in the air, but on land as well uh, at those land crossings. Absolutely. I and mean, it, ma- it makes perfect sense. And it's about time that they that they did that. So they said that they will start that. At, as soon as possible in the coming days was was the phrase that the, the prime minister used last week, and I've, I've yet to see anything that's that's more definitive. I think the uh, public safety minister Bill Blair is speaking with people in the Biden administration about how the border situation will work, and then of course you know there there are a few people that are always trying to find a way around this, and and I've had people you know send me notes on Twitter and say aha, but I can fly to Miami, then I can catch a flight from Miami to Jamaica. Yes, you could for now, but. The Biden administration announced eight or 10 days ago that they are going to bring in a 14-day quarantine as well. So that would mean, effectively, you, you would have to go to the U.S., pay for a hotel, quarantine for 14 days, then catch a flight to Jamaica, then come back, and then spend $2,000 to quarantine again on your way home. Yeah, unless somebody's got like a dying relative, I don't see how anybody's going to be doing really much travel whatsoever. Yeah, I was going to say, so this is achieving what the government wants here. They want to bring travel pretty much to a halt as of uh, right now, because, I mean, you talk about the rules we know of being onerous and some of the things that are still up in the air that you just detailed, uh, Jim, that uh, nobody, I think, uh, really wants to uh, travel right now and get caught up uh, in all of this. And uh, I know that this is coming at a cost as well. Uh, not only to the airlines who have, uh, you know, been uh, grounded and uh, were willing to do that, as we heard uh, last week, but uh, we're also getting reports out of, you know, places like Mexico, the tourism industry there. They're saying that this could cost them uh, upwards of close to $800 million. 
Yeah, and, and, and that was U.S. So I mean, I did the I did the math this morning, and it, it's it's close to a billion dollars Canadian. And don't forget, Jeff, you know, not a lot of Mexican uh, people from Mexico were flying into Canada uh, to, to you know to go to Niagara Falls in March or April. But some people do come up for business and other purposes. And according to the Mexico tourism figures, it was on your your website actually. Uh, the Global News website, uh, Canada might lose $368 million in Mexican visitor spending. So it's not just a, a one-way street. And then there's the Caribbean. You know, the Caribbean is the most uh, tourism-dependent region in the world, uh, according to the World Travel uh, Tourism Council. They're, gonna, they're devastated by this. I mean, Canada, for most countries in, 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 in uh, the Caribbean, is if it's not number one, it's usually their, uh, we're their number two market or maybe number three behind Britain. Um, so, you know, this is devastating for hotel workers, tourism workers, delivery people, uh, florists who supply flowers for the lobby of the hotel, um, all restaurants, all taxi drivers, you name it, all up and down the line. So, uh, you, you, but, you know, your point is a very good one that, that you don't need an, uh, uh, an emergency act travel ban when you make it so onerous and so difficult and so costly, they effectively have created a, 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 it's a de facto travel ban. Without a doubt. Jim Byers, Canada's travel guide guy. Jim, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much uh, for doing this. You're welcome, Jeff. Have a good one. You too. All right. Buckle up, investors. Here we go again. Or at least it seems like here we go again. Uh, GameStop. We talked about them at length last week and how social media kind of shook the financial world by propping up this stock, forcing trading to be halted. Well, it looks like it might be happening again. And joining us now for more, our personal finance expert, Rabina Ahmed Hawk joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Rabina, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Uh, GameStop mania has now spread to, to silver. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's the same story over again. Uh, the, the guys on this Reddit thread, Wall Street Bets, saw that uh, Wall Street ha- was overshorting silver, so expecting that the price of silver was going to drop uh, dramatically and decided to start buying silver and therefore prop the price up artificially. I mean, these things are not being done because of any fundamental reason. Uh, they're only because of in, you know independent investors on these threads and then those people being affected by it, watching the news and saying, oh, maybe I'll get in on this silver rush, if that's what you want to call it. And, um, you know, it, it, we saw it last week with a number of different companies, including GameStop, Bed Bath & Beyond, BlackBerry here in Canada. Um, and then we saw it again with Nokia at the end of the week. And now we're seeing it with commodities like silver. Um, it's really disruptive because for, you know, if you are a, a, an investor who looks at fundamentals, and buys because they feel the company is is actually doing better um, or is you know going in the gutter. Uh, this can really um, hurt even other small guys too who are not trying to play games with the market but actually trying to invest in it. Okay, so is this the new business as usual for investors and for the stock market? Do you think? Well, I mean, the stock market is so unpredictable. This is just another good example of how rumor and speculation and um, rogue actions, but in this case by independent investors, uh, retail investors as they're called, uh, can really change markets. And that people like you and I who may be investing for the long term, so we have money in our retirement savings or we save for our kids' education or we save for a down, pay- down payment on a home, we shouldn't be participating in this type of noise because we can get hurt. So now that we've heard about silver, 
um, the 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 chance to buy into that has already passed once you've heard about it. So that's one thing that I, I believe investors should always keep top of mind is that once you've heard the story, it's too late to get involved in it and make money. The people who are going to make money have already done that, and now that's why it's making uh, headlines. Right. Not that I'm you sh- yeah, exactly. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't participate. Just be really clear about your your um, motives and uh, be open to losing money. <laughs> Listen, I'm not a short seller. I'm not even a long seller. I don't play the uh, stock market, but I am an investor like uh, we all are in our long-term future. And when I hear that silver now is being short-sold, or that that kind of shakes me a little bit because silver is one of those things. It's kind of like gold. It's one of those commodities that you just think are, are, are just there and are trustworthy. You have to remember, so the, you know the gold standard. That's where that came from, right? So people, whenever there's, um, whenever there's volatility on the market, people start buying gold stocks. People stop buying gold companies. But gold is only worth. Gold doesn't actually have any function in the world. Gold is only worth what it is worth because people have given it value. They have decided that gold is going to. Be this, one gold bar is going to cost you this much, and you can hold on to it, and you can pass it on to somebody else, and then they can give you the money for it if, if that's if that's what you want to do. Uh, so you know, commodities are um, of where people go when markets are volatile. In this case, it has nothing to do with although there is volatility, but uh, this frenzy has nothing to do with the volatility. It has everything to do with just uh, you know these retail investors deciding on different threads, including this Reddit thread. Uh, that they are not happy about the fact that Wall Street's shorting silver, so they want to stick it to them. Because as you know, when the price of now all of us are very good at understanding what it means to short a stock, but you know the the loss is un is unlimited when you short something. It can go from you know whatever it's at to the sky's the limit, and you can lose money along the way if um, if you have to buy that stock back. All right. Just finally on this topic, uh, where does this go from here? I mean, how does this uh, all end? Do we have any sense how this is going to play out eventually? Well, you know, I don't mean to be a pessimist, but I think the market's heading for some really volatile times. There's a lot of debt um, in in the market right now. And these types of uh, events where retail investors start to get uh, really excited about certain industries, certain companies, they tend to follow, uh, they tend to be at the end of a big bull run. It happened right before the dot-com crisis where a lot of, in, you know, retail, small investors were getting involved, trying to get rich quick. And then we saw what happened with the dot-com bubble. It happened right before the housing crisis in 2008, 2009. I mean, if you even if just use the example of so many people are going out there and just buying houses, this is more in the U.S. with no money down and, you know, feeling that that's their get-rich scheme. That's how they were going to make it. And now, again, it's happening with the markets, with, you know, in, in retail investors, and rightfully so, saying we don't want Wall Street to control our investments. But what we're miss the point that we are missing is that nothing is making fundamental sense. It's, it's not that retail investors shouldn't be involved with the market, but you can't try to manipulate it in a way that is only going to benefit a small number of people because then nobody wins. Only those small number of people win. So you're just as bad as the Wall Street guys um, if, if you're playing the market that way. Joined by Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. Rabina, also in business news here this afternoon, the Bay, they've just announced that they are uh, cutting jobs in a significant number. Yeah, so this is a sign of the times. Uh, The Bay, which we know a couple of months ago when the lockdown was first um, announced, tried to take Ontario uh, government to court and say, no, we are an essential business because we sell uh, groceries at some of our locations. I think this is, uh, you know, specialty grocery stores that they have. Um, they lost that. 
The stores have been closed, not just here in Ontario, but across the country periodically uh, throughout COVID-19. And so now they are um, laying people off. It's only 5% of their staff, but it's still 600 workers across Canada. And many of them are on the retail floor, their middle management. And so they are, you know, looking at whether this is right. They're speaking to employment lawyers. They're making sure that they're, you know, getting the compensation they deserve. Uh, Companies have the right to lay people off but they have to give them proper severance if they're going to do that. They cannot terminate them and not give them the severance they deserve. And I, and I believe that's now what they are, they're, they're going to be um, pursuing. So what can we read between the lines here? Does the Bay figure that once the pandemic is done, that Canadians, we've significantly shifted when it comes to our shopping, and even when they can reopen the, their stores, that not as many people are going to be coming, that online shopping has really taken over? I think it's, it's that. And I also think that, I mean, to not sound um, cold about these these layoffs, I think they can hire people back. I think the Bay is well aware that they can hire 5% of retail staff, you know, staff that work on the floor, they can hire them back. Um, so they're not so concerned about laying some people off now. They know they, you know, you they they're not they're not laying off people that they're not going to be able to find that talent anymore. They're going to find people who have customer service skills. They're going to be able to find people that can work on retail floors, um, and they'll you know they'll probably do a hiring blitz. I actually think, Jeff, when the pandemic is over, is that many of us are going to shun online shopping because we're so sick and tired of it. Even though our habits have changed, I know that from my own experience, the day that I can go out there and touch and feel things and buy them with my own eyes is, you know, is going to be a treat. And I really think for the short term, at least, um, I'm going to try to reject online shopping just so I can feel like a human being again when I'm shopping. <laughs> Whoever would have thought we'd be looking forward to crowded shopping malls again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, give me a boxing day, something, something yeah. to look forward to, yeah. Rabina, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, there's Rabina Ahmed Hawk, our personal finance expert. Well, the education minister with an announcement earlier today, Stephen Lecce announcing a major investment, some $380 million for more PPE and ventilation in our schools. And the education minister also announcing that students in teacher education programs can now be hired for supply teaching positions, this to make up for teacher shortages during the pandemic. Global Sandy Salerno has more on this. It's a move that will add up to 2,000 educators to school board rosters to help boards as they struggle with a shortage of educators. Those that qualify will be able to be hired on for supply jobs, but only when fully certified teachers can't be found first. Liz Stewart is a president of the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. She says you wouldn't have to hire student teachers in the first place if the government had properly planned for this school year. A solution to a problem that could have been avoided and one that we have, you know, been trying to talk to the government about, you know, about what are some of the alternatives that could have been put in place so we didn't find ourselves in the position that we're currently in. To qualify for the program, students will have to have good grades, some in-class experience, and be on track to graduate by the end of the year. Sandy Salerno, Global News. All right, Merritt Stiles is the education critic for the NDP and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Merritt, good afternoon. Appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Okay, your take on this uh, use of student teachers. Well, look, uh, you know, I, I think what Liz Stewart just said was was right on the money. This is uh, this is something that I certainly believe that we should come, come up with all kinds of creative approaches. Uh, and we do need more teachers right now because we are trying to push the government very hard to 
reduce class sizes. Um, but but this is this is the government once again late late to the game here, uh, and not actually talking and trying to work in a collaborative way with with all of the different uh, organizations, with the teachers and others, to try to make sure we could actually have this dealt with much earlier, uh, and that we could have had more qualified teachers in place. I, but I, I I think it's you know we're in a crisis, uh, no question. Uh, and I just wish that they had uh, come up with some solutions in the fall when I think it would have had made a, a really big difference in terms of uh, whether or not we would have locked down again. Okay, what should we have been doing in your estimation? I mean, did we need to be here? What should we have been doing before this to make sure that uh, we weren't at this point right now? Right. Well, we've been really consistent in what we're calling for, and it's in line with what experts are calling for as well, which is smaller class sizes so students could distance between them. I mean, when you have a, a classroom of 25, 30 students, like there's just no way to distance properly. Uh, we should have had a comprehensive testing program in schools, uh, asymptomatic testing, um, from the time that was available in the early fall. That that should have been in place right okay, away. Okay, but sorry to interrupt, but when we talk about this uh, shortage of uh, teachers and the fact uh, that we're now having to pluck uh, kids out of teachers' college uh, right now and put them into a role that uh, maybe, maybe not uh, that they're ready for, what should we have been doing to make sure that uh, we didn't yeah. get there? Yeah, right. So, so definitely, um, you know, working with all of the different unions and the teachers' college is critical to make that happen, as well as the the deans of education and all of the the teachers' colleges. You know, so I have no problem with them. You know, reaching out to teachers to to student teachers now. I think it's all hands on deck. I completely believe in that. But again, um, what we we're kind of got to this place because. Uh, the government didn't plan, didn't plan ahead, didn't do the work that needed to be done when when schools first closed. And we had the first indication of this back in the spring last year. Yeah, you know, all the talk has been, of course, as you well know, Merritt, about the quality of education, that uh, we want to make sure that our kids are prepared uh, for the future as best we can uh, during this pandemic, and that in-class learning is better than uh, remote learning, and it's better for kids to be in the classroom. Are you at all concerned that perhaps our kids' education is being sacrificed by using student teachers who, again, might not quite be ready for this role? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'll tell you, if there's anything that keeps me up at night, it's that question of, of how our kids are learning right now. And I know it's what a lot of parents are worried about and students themselves, right? So absolutely. Um, we're concerned. We have every right to be concerned. And I think really what we've been lacking and what makes me concerned, I think you could make this work, but the government hasn't shown that they're willing to put the investment of, of, of action and, and money, frankly, into this. Like we didn't even have... Uh, any training, uh, mandatory training for, for teachers last year in the fall when they started online teaching. Uh, we didn't see any as, as schools closed down again. So, so I have no confidence that this government is going to actually provide the kind of support and training that those student teachers are going to need. Um, and, and because they're not doing it right now, even for the qualified teachers. So absolutely, that's a concern. And to be honest, there's a lot more that this government should be doing to address those learning gaps now and and as they prepare for September next year. Joined by the education critic for the NDP, Merritt Stiles. Also wanted to get your take while we have you here this afternoon on this investment, $381 million for more PPE and ventilation in our uh, schools. Is that enough? It's a big number. So that's the, the second installment of the money that the federal government announced uh, last, uh, last fall. Uh, the government 
spent half of it in the in, in starting in September, and then they were supposed to spend the next now. So it's really a reannouncement of money we already knew was coming. But I think what worries me is is not that the that they're going to spend that, or if they haven't even spent the money that they were given the last time. That's what our our research shows, and that's concerning to me because you know they're announcing that they're going to you know put it into PPE into ventilation, but we're we're already not seeing the impact of that that first installment back in the fall. Uh, where are these supposed school nurses that were all hired? Where are the new caretakers? Um, where is the effort to keep uh, classes smaller and kids able to distance? None of this is, seems to be happening. And, and as well, government is, still doesn't have a real plan in place for how they're going to uh, test for COVID in schools. All right. So having said all of that, the education minister said that they remain committed to getting students back into the classroom. The target date is February 10th. We've got more students in class in both London and Ottawa in the province uh, starting today. But with problems uh, around testing and spending on ventilation, class size concern, do you think it's uh, wise? Is it safe to be moving forward once again with in-class learning? Well, you know, the, the government, the, the Minister of Education was, was not confirming today whether or not kids were going back uh, in these hot spots on February 10th. And I know that's going to be a big concern for a lot of families out there. Uh, I think we all want our kids safely back in school, right, as quickly as possible. But we do have to consider there's these more infectious variants that are out there in our communities. And I'm, I'm very worried that if we don't see the government really ramp up testing and infection control and allow for that distancing, then history is going to repeat itself. Uh, we'll have more students and staff getting sick, but we'll also have more school closures again. So we need to get this right. But um, absolutely, I mean, I want to see kids back in school, too. I think it's the best way to learn. Uh, but we need to make sure that the government is actually putting in place the precautions and the support to make it work this time. Well, it's February 1st, so the 10th is only nine days away. Can all that be done in just nine short days? Um, I'm, I'm not feeling pretty very good about it, uh, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, we heard the government today say that they're, they're looking at uh, starting to do more testing in schools, but it didn't sound like much of a plan to me. They couldn't really commit to how long it would take. And, and I, just, I have to say, you know, what, what, has been, what have they been doing uh, since last September? What were they waiting for? Uh, this is exactly what we were all afraid of. And, and again, you know, we want those kids back in school. I don't know any parents who, who are not, you know, really focused on that right now. But, uh, but we've got to do it safely. So I am concerned that they haven't left enough time here and that they've waited till the last minute again. All right. We will leave it there for now and, of course, be watching this with interest. Merritt Stiles, thanks so much. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Stay well. You as well. Merritt Stiles is the education critic for the NDP.